Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. For the workers in there. Now, let's stand for the, the Word of God. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. I am, I am reading from the Legacy Translation, and it differs a little bit from the NASB, if you've noticed that. I'm reading that, though the, the words on there are from the NASB. This is the Word of God. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been called to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been called, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fattened livestock and all, are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were called were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, call to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The word of the Lord. Please be seated and let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and it is eternal, and it is true, and I ask, Father, that these may not be my words, but your word, and that as your word, it may come into our lives with power, that it may bring conviction, and that it may be working in us by your Holy Spirit. We pray it in the great name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. There's a saying that I learned from my father that is a kind of commonplace saying among preachers. I think it's been taught to preachers over the generations, maybe even the centuries, about parables. And my dad told me it in this form, and I think I've heard it from many others in this form, is that you can't make a parable walk on all four legs. Now that is... A strange metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> but the point of it is to say that a parable is a simple story intended to convey a simple truth, and if you go too fancy in your interpretation of it, you're probably missing the simple message because you're getting too fanciful in the way you interpret it. I don't know if any of you have ever heard an allegorical interpretation of a parable, but if you read Augustine, 
you'll find allegorical interpretations of lots of things and they'll make sense because it's Augustine but then you get back out and you, you leave the force field, the deflection field of Augustine's mind and you say, no, wait a second, did that really make sense? Because while you're reading it, it made sense but it's a little like being around Steve Jobs. You know, it makes sense until you get away from it. <laughs> they called it the reality distortion field and Augustine has that effect in a much greater and more beautiful way. So you read him, but if you read Augustine on the parable of the Good Samaritan, he has an interpretation of every part of the parable. Um, he, he, has, uh, he has in that parable man, the man who's walking is Adam, humanity, and he, mankind's walking. He's beaten and stripped stripped of immorality, of immortality, um, and persuaded the sin is being beaten. The priest who goes by is the law of the Old Testament, they can't help him. The Levite that goes by is the prophets of the Old Testament, they can't help him. The Samaritan is Christ, the end is the church, the two denarii are the promises that are given us for this life and for the life to come. The innkeeper who do you think the innkeeper is in this interpretation? Anyone want to guess? What? No, the, the inn was the church. So, Matt, you're, you're close, but that was the inn. But who would be the innkeeper? But I, I'm hearing... What? The, the, the innkeeper, he says, is the Apostle Paul. And so you, you have a, a whole interpretation and it it makes sense in a way, but it's not, I think, the point of the parable. Well, if I go through all that to say that if there was ever a parable that every part has, is, is, is pregnant with meaning, it's this parable that we're in this morning. This parable, you can make it walk on all four legs, okay? And you don't have to get fancy, and you don't have to get allegorical. This parable speaks, and it speaks one of the weightiest messages of all the parables. It is a weighty parable. It's a really important parable. And I hope God allows us to, to delve into it with, with his Holy Spirit this morning. Let's remember the background of this parable. Christ is in the last week of his life and he's entered Jerusalem. He entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry with the people praising him, the kids shouting, Hosanna, and the leaders of the people being irate and saying, don't you hear what they're saying about you? Don't you hear? Can't you understand? This is wrong. This is wrong. You know, who are you to be worshiped this way? Now, <laughs> if those children had been singing for them and if the palm branches had been strewn for their, their donkey, and I, I think they'd have found a way to accept it, you know, <laughs> but it's being given to Christ, this nobody from Nazareth of Galilee. Does any good thing come from Galilee? You know the saying that they had of Jesus? And so they can't find it in their magnanimous hearts to accept this worship of this man. They'd accept it if it were someone of, of their magnitude, but not Jesus. And Jesus has further offended them by then going into the, the temple and cleansing it with violence, you know, casting things out, throwing things over. If he did it this time as he did in the beginning of his ministry with a whip, Jesus was no pansy. 
And when he cleansed the temple, no one thought that it was gentle Jesus, meek and mild. They understood that this was an authoritative man in full masculine power, son of God. And again, a threat to their authority because if there was one place that these leaders of the Jews actually could claim as their bailiwick, place where they were in authority, it was the temple. Jesus goes into their temple and he cleanses it. And they're the high priests and they're the elders. So then the next day he's in the temple preaching and teaching and there are crowds around him and this is almost as bad an offense as his cleansing of it because now he's not cleansing it, which everyone understands it was a little unseemly the way that these people are making money and the way the flocks are coming in and the fact that the temple ground is is become somewhat of a marketplace, has the kind of the appearance of a bazaar. And so, you know, there's a little bit of guilt. And everyone knows that the priests are profiting off of this because they sell the licenses to do this. So they can get that. But then he comes in and he, he presumes to teach in the temple. Well, it's their job to teach in the temple. It's their prerogative. It is their calling. Who is this guy to do this? And so they come to him and they ask him, what's your authority? By what authority do you do this, Jesus? This is all about authority. Jesus says to them, and this is the beginning of the series of parables that we've been in, but the first one is a test of him. By what authority? He says to them, uh, you tell me by what authority John the Baptist baptized. I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. And they won't say because they rejected John the Baptist, but they know the crowds that are there with Jesus and who are listening to Jesus loved John the Baptist and responded to his teaching. So they won't say. They say, well, we don't know. So Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what I know. And then he, he follows with three parables. The first of them is the parable of the two sons. Father says to his two kids, he says to his two sons, go out and work in the field today. One son says, I'll do it, but he doesn't do it. The second son says, I'm not going to do it, but he regrets what he said, and he goes and does it. And so Jesus is dividing the group in front of him. There's the one son who says, yes, yes, I'll do it, yes. I'm a dutiful son. And then there's the other son who says, nope, nope, forget it. And then feels bad about it and actually goes and does it. The son who speaks, oh, I'll do it, he never does it. Jesus is dividing. His authority is dividing. He's casting, he's casting a sentence on that crowd that divides it. Some of you are this son. Some of you are that son. And, and in that delineation and definition of the crowd, he's embracing one group and he's casting the other group away. He's putting his arm around the sinners who are there. We're told that the tax collectors and prostitutes were there. You know, Jesus hung with them and they're complaining about it. Jesus is putting his arm around the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the people who are sinners, and he's saying to the, to the righteous, the self-righteous leaders of the Jews, get away. You're that son who said yes and does no. That's the first of these parables. The second parable is a parable that he tells, and the first one is to both those groups. You know, it's, I am with this group and I am opposed. But then he goes and he tells a parable that is up to those he's rejecting. And that, that parable is the, 
the parable of the vineyard, which we, we looked at last week, immediately precedes this parable. And the parable of the vineyard is of uh, a landowner who builds a vineyard, sets it up, gets it going, turns it over, and the tenants take over and start running the operation, and they refuse to pay their rent. They won't give the fruit of the vineyard to the landlord. He set it all up, he made it fruitful, and they keep the fruit, and they won't give it. So he sends messengers, they ignore the messengers, they beat them. Finally, he sends his son, and they kill the son. And, and these guys know that this parable is told about them. Now, they've been planning to kill Jesus. And, uh, and they're aware, when Jesus tells this parable, that he's talking about them. They're the ones who, who have taken over the vineyard and who are acting as though they own it. And, and they're the ones who won't give the fruit. And they're planning to kill him. And so they understand that he's the son of the, the owner of the vineyard. And they know that he knows that they're going to try and kill him. And it's all clear. You know, it's all out in the open. He says, yeah, you're going to try and kill me. You've killed other prophets before. Now you're going to kill me. And they are. And they go out. And they, at the end of that parable, they go. And they, they scheme about how they're going to get him. But they're afraid of the crowds. And so they can't really grab him. And so... It, at this point, we come to this parable that we just read together, and this parable is a parable in which Jesus speaks to that crowd. He had his arm around, and he talks to them about their place, and he gives them some warnings in this parable, but he talks to them about why they're in, under his arm, in, under his protection, loved by him when this other group was cast away. Because if anything seems obvious to people who are sinners in the temple, it seems like the leaders of the temple should be the guys that God's with, not them. You know, you're a tax collector, you're a prostitute, you're in the temple. And <coughs> your first thought is going to be, well, I don't deserve to be here. And those are the guys who really do deserve to be here. And those are the guys, and look, what is Jesus doing? I mean, he's casting them away and he's putting his arm around us? How on earth can it be that, he, that this... Is this really true of God? You know, is, is this guy righteous? Does he, does he speak for God in, in casting off the high priests and the elders of the people and embracing us? So Jesus is speaking to them and talking to them about the difference between being called and being chosen, and it's a distinction that's at the center of our lives, and I hope it at the end of our look at this parable, it'll be clear to you that you must be chosen and not just called. And so I want, to, I want to speak about the parts of this parable. And I want to begin with the wedding feast itself and the king who's throwing this feast for his son. It's, it's a wedding of a son. And the, the theme, this is why I'm saying this parable walks on all four. Because if there is one theme that is a theme throughout Scripture that ultimately culminates in an actual wedding, which is the great wedding of all the ages, and the, the pattern by which we marry, it is the theme of, of God marrying his people. God claiming a people as his bride. And so we see in the, in the Old Testament from the very beginning, God puts man and woman together and gives them a covenant, and then he starts making covenants with man. The first covenant with human beings was Adam and Eve coming together, and then God starts making covenants with them. 
But as sinners, they're not keeping their covenant. And so what does God say to these people who he's called into covenant, a covenant that is a reflection of marriage? Well, that is the original marriage. What does God say to his people when, they are, when they're not following the covenant, when they're not obeying his law? He says to them, he says, my people are playing the harlot against me with the idols of the nations. And what does it mean to play the harlot? Well, I think you, most of you know this, but it means they're acting like prostitutes. They're covenanted to me. They're my wife. And they're running to these idols. God speaks about his people. He says, I've known them. And the word that he uses for knowing is the, is the word that's used in the Bible for the way a man and a woman come together and the man knows the woman. It's, it's consistently not a metaphor because a metaphor represents something. It's not a metaphor. It is the actual fact of it. It is a marriage. And so you, you continue through the, New, the Old Testament and time after time after time. The, the prophecy says that your sons will marry you. The prophet tells the people of Israel, your sons will marry you. What does that mean? It means that the day is coming when Jesus, the son of Israel, the son of Abraham, the son of David, is going to marry his bride, the church. You have the Song of Solomon, which is that great love story between, well, the son of the king and his bride. And it is, that is allegory. It is a metaphor of Christ and the church. It's just flat out. It represents Christ and his bride. And so all through the Old Testament, you have this theme of weddings. You have the glory of human marriage because the first wedding, that, the first miracle that's recorded of Christ is to make a wedding beautiful, you know? It's not insignificant that the first thing we see Jesus do in his miraculous signs before mankind is to, is to make a wedding beautiful. The wedding at Cana of Galilee where he makes the wine. Throughout, throughout the New Testament, we are told that the church is the bride of Christ. And in the end, the reason that this is no metaphor is that in Revelation, we come to the the end of all the battles in Revelation and all the conflict. And at the end of that conflict, there is the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And in that great wedding feast, the church is wed to Jesus Christ. And that's the end of Revelation, the wedding feast. And so we're going and heading towards a wedding feast in which we will marry the son of God. So you have a wedding in this, in this parable and you have, you have the son of the king and the king of obviously is God and the son is obviously Jesus Christ and everyone gets this, you know. There's this wedding feast and, and Jesus is speaking about the nature of his father. And what he says is that my father wants to have me marry you. Why? Because they need to be redeemed. It's a, it's a, the parable is just full of the glory of Jesus Christ, the kindness of the Father, the willingness of God to be identified with sinners. He invites people to a wedding feast, sinners. And the reason that they must come to their wedding feast is that they need to be united with Jesus 
to live with him eternally as sinners. They need to be transformed through that wedding, through that wedding of, of Jesus and those who love him. And the king invites all the people to come. He sends out invitations, and then the day comes, and he sends out messengers, and he says, come, it's all prepared, you know? I've made it all ready. The wine is, is there. The, the cattle have been butchered. It's, it's all ready. And this is about Jesus. He's come, and you need to embrace him. You're invited to this wedding. God is saying to you, he's calling you. But Jesus is speaking to this crowd. He's got his arm around and they're sinners and they find it hard to believe. And they've just seen him reject this group. And there's a group in this. And we turn from the nature of God who is kind, kind, kind. And even at the end, when the wedding feast comes, let me just point out something to you you may have missed as we read it. The king comes in when the, finally the, the feast is being held and everyone's been called in from the highways and the byways and the, the originally invited people have been consigned to destruction by his armies. The king comes in and he, he looks over the guests and I'll come back to this in a moment at the end. But he sees there a man who's not dressed in wedding clothes. Look what he says to this man who's come who is going to be cast out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that is the wedding feast of the Lamb. Those who are in that wedding feast in Revelation are being married to Christ, and those who are not in that wedding feast are in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus is speaking about here. But he speaks to this man, and he says, friend, Look, God calls this man who came, and you may say this guy is, well, he's a good guy. He wants to be there. He's not a good guy. He's an enemy. But God calls him friend. He says, friend. Now, the problem with this group that Jesus has his arm around, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and you and me, is that if we're not those who think they're something, like the group he rejects, then we think we're nothing, and we think, how could God actually call me? And we hear the voice of God saying, friend, friend, friend to this sinner. He doesn't want to cast him out. He will. He will. It's not his will. He doesn't take delight. God wants you to be his friend. God, the great majestic God, the God who is angry at your sin, says to you, friend, friend, will you not listen to me? I'm approaching you as your friend. He is not your enemy. He is not your enemy until you make him so and define him so. Now in this parable, we move on, all right? Think about this father, this king, who calls the man who comes to the wedding and isn't dressed right, friend, and who has invited people who scorn his son. 
invited people who scorn him. He, he's not ignorant. When the Father God sends out his messengers into the world and sends them to speak to people, he knows those messengers are going to be killed at times, that they're going to be rejected. And he, in his love, continues to call you and to say, friend, repent. Friend, come on. Hey, I'm your friend. I want to be your father. Embrace me. That's the one part of the, the parable, I think maybe the, the most glorious part. I think the best word in this is him turning to that guy who's in that feast and didn't come dressed and saying, friend, how could you do this, friend? There's a, a second part of this parable that we've got to deal with, and that's those who are called and only called. And that, in this parable, that group consists largely of those who, but there is this final guy, all right, and we'll talk about him in a month. That consists largely of the group that, um, that he sent his messengers to originally, and who some of them said, oh, look, I'm busy. There's a variety of answers to this, um, the, the messengers. Some people just say, I'm busy. Others say, I've got things to attend to. And still others respond by seizing the messengers, the slaves, mistreating them and killing them. All right, so you see a, a gradation of responses. Some say, ah, busy. Some say, eh. Some say, <clears throat> and... Uh, this is this called group. Obviously, this group includes all the leaders of the Jews. And in fact, it in includes much of Israel. Just as in the previous parable, Jesus said, look, if you won't give the fruit of your vineyard to the owner, he's going to give it to others. This is a warning like that. Look, if the people who were invited don't come, God is going to call other people to his feast. And it's because of the graciousness of God turning away from the Jews who were his originally called people that you're called. Now God never solely called the Jews. It was always possible for the alien and the sojourner to become a Jew. If he wanted to be a Jew, he could be a Jew. All he had to do was be circumcised, participate, and he was like the rest of Israel. So all through the Old Testament, you have this warning. Do not treat the sojourner, don't treat the alien as though he's distinct from you. If he's coming, he's part of you, you embrace him. So it was always possible to be included in that group, but the called group was the Jews. And at the conclusion of the life of Christ, it's going to be a much broader group, and the Jews that become followers of Jesus are no longer known as Jews, they're Christians. So this group that is called is called to a wedding. Now, it's a royal wedding, and there are certain things that, that need to be said about a royal wedding. When there's a royal wedding, the wedding of a son of a king, especially if there's male primogenitor where the heir is the oldest son, a wedding is the continuation of the line, all right? So the wedding of the son is the ongoing march of the monarchy, of the, of the right of the king. You understand it's significant because this is the royal line progressing. And so, when you're invited to a royal wedding, there's a number of things at work here. 
some of them are positive. You know, there's going to be a lot of food and drinking. You remember the, the celebration that Artaxerxes had when, when, uh, when he called his wife to come in and she said, I'm not coming in. It was weeks of, of partying. You know, and, and it's a privilege to be invited to it. What a privilege. You know, it's kind of a command performance. The king says, come to a wedding. You don't say no, right? You say, yeah. The, uh, the hottest social ticket of the last half century was the, the wedding of Charles and Diana and then of Charles and, uh, no, William and Catherine. Yeah, 3,500 people invited to those weddings and uh, both of them had over a billion people. <laughs> For single event viewership, the wedding of Charles and Diana blew everything out of the water except two things that happened in the 1970s before. <laughs> and each of those things had a few more people watching, over a billion people, and those were Muhammad Ali's fights in Africa. <laughs> so, but other than Muhammad Ali, the wedding of Princess Di and uh, Prince Charles was the single coolest thing on TV. I mean, everyone watched it back then. How many of you watched it on TV back in 1981? Uh, you don't want to admit it, men, but you did. I see you, David Myers. You watched it, didn't you? No, we didn't. <laughs> we're in church, David. <laughs> so, uh, a royal wedding. 3,500 people at the uh, Princess Catherine, or uh, now Williams, uh, which was like 10 years ago. Uh, 2,500, I think it was, at Charles and Dice. 2,500 invitations. A billion people watching. An invitation to a wedding of a king. A king's son. I mean, that's a thing. And here it is, it's a king's son. A wedding. But, of course, a king's son's wedding has certain implications as well. So in 1981, when Princess Di and Prince Charles got married, I can remember people saying, okay, you know, they invite other heads of state. As future heads of state, they invite other heads of state. Some monarchs from all over Europe, but also... President Mitterrand of France, president of Germany at the time came, and of course Ronald Reagan was invited. But the question was, should Ronald Reagan go to the wedding of the king? And what was the answer? Well, the answer was, no, Ronald Reagan does not go to the wedding of Di Princess Di and Prince Charles. No, but he sends his wife because he doesn't want to be excluded. So Nancy Reagan went to the wedding, but the president did not go because to go to the wedding of a king is to, in a way, say, I'm under the authority or I recognize the authority and I see the significance of this wedding as different from all other weddings. And for the United States president to go, and sit under the monarch of England at his wedding would be a little bit unseemly, you know? When a king's son marries, there's implications of authority everywhere, you know? When Charles I in England 
came to the throne after the Reformation, after Henry VIII turned England into a Reformed country and no longer Roman Catholic, Charles I married a woman from France, a princess from France, Margarita or something like that, I can't remember her name. And all of England said, whoa, he married a Catholic. He married a Roman Catholic. And they opposed that wedding because that was an alliance. This was a significant thing. Weddings of king's sons are statements about authority, about direction. And so these men who say, I will not come to the wedding, they're not saying I'm busy. They're saying, I'm really not under your authority. You know, I'm not going to come to that wedding. I don't, I don't think I need to be there. And the more the king urges them to come, the angrier they get. Now, isn't this true of God's work with our lives? Unless we break and repent and say, I will work in your field, Dad, the more he says to us, you owe me this. You need to do this. You need to repent. You need to go the direction. And we get angrier and angrier and angrier. And we go, and eventually we say, I'm going to kill you. I'm so tired of you harping on this all the time. How many of you have said this to relatives who've talked to you about your obligations to God? Maybe the first times you hear it, you go, okay. By the 10th time, you want to kill him. This is what happens. They kill the messengers because the messenger is saying, you owe the king. You're under the king. You need to come to this wedding. And so they kill the messengers. And the king understands it, and he sends his armies. And he kills those men. Now, that group is the chief priests and the elders. And God is going to send his armies. I mentioned this last week, didn't I? Forty years, less than 40 years from this date, Jerusalem, which has been the center of Jewish worship by now, for well over a thousand years, 40 years from this date when Christ gives this parable, Titus, Roman general, comes into Jerusalem. He besieges it because the Jews were always a fractious people and they rebelled and they kept rebelling after Christ's death. He comes against Jerusalem. He holds it in siege until people are dying left and right of, of famine, starvation. And then, finally, the city is broken. The Roman troops enter the city. And Josephus, who's the historian, the Jewish historian of that era, tells us that they went in and they killed and killed and killed. They set fires everywhere. They found, when the Romans went in, many of the people dead in their houses, either committing suicide, kind of like Masada, or having starved to death. But those who were alive, they killed. They killed them all. And they set fires. And Josephus says that the blood flowed so freely in the city, 70 AD, so freely, so much blood, that it put out the fires. God said, I'm done with this people. And he's done. So that's the fate of this group that is called. You know, they've, they've liked being called. 
they're honored to be called. They want to be invited to the wedding on the one hand. They just don't want to submit to the authority of it. Oh, they're happy they got the invitation, and they're happy to decline it. And if they hadn't gotten the invitation, they'd have gone, well, who does he think he is not to invite me? But they got the invitation, and now their, their pride has them. No, I don't need to go. I'm not going to submit to this. No, no, I've got other things to do. This is the way the world is. Under God, God in his glory and his mercy gives you things. You're happy to take the things. Oh, yeah, I'll take that from you, God. I'll have that. He does good things for you. Oh, uh, yeah. But the minute he puts a claim on your life and says, give me the fruit, you go, oh, no. He says, work in my field. And you go, yeah, 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 God. And then you go and you do what you want. This is who, who you are and who I am. So this is the second group, and then we come to this final group. And the final group are those who are called as well. And they're out of the highways and the byways, and this this group that Jesus has his arm around. They're not the fancy dudes. They're not the well-dressed people. They're not the people with a good reputation. They're the bad people, the kind of folk who know they need to repent, the kind of people Jesus came for, because he didn't come for the healthy who don't need a doctor, but he came for the sick. And these people are sick. And they know they're sick and they come running to Jesus when Jesus is preaching health and salvation and they love Jesus. They can't quite believe that God acts this way. So Jesus is telling them, yeah, yeah, no, God has rejected this crowd and God has called you. And you may think it's crazy, but it's not. But they need to submit to the authority of the Son of God, right? And they do. And they're happy to be there. Many of you are in that crowd. But then there's this weird ending to the story. And the weird ending is that at the close of the, uh, at the, close of the parable, Jesus, speaking to them, says, yeah, the king came in and he sees it and he's happy with it and it's all good, but... Then he notices a man there who's not dressed in wedding clothes. He says to him, friend, how'd you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. So as the servants have gone out to the highways and the byways and grabbed people to come in off the streets, they haven't actually corralled them and put their arms around them and made them walk in lockstep like a cop would if he's dragging you to the paddy wagon down to the wedding. They've actually said, come, and the people have gone home, and they've changed. You understand? And they're wearing the kind of clothes you'd wear to a wedding. And they're all dressed appropriately, but there's one guy in the midst who's come in in his sweats. And he's sitting there in the midst of them, and he's saying, yeah, it's great to be here. And the king looks and says, whoa, how'd you get in here? Why did you not go home? and turn in those sweats for wedding clothes. And the man's speechless. And the king says to the servants, bind him, hand and foot, throw him out of here. But it's not just outside the hall, it's throw him out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you go, whoa, that is an etiquette fail, isn't it? to show up at a wedding 
<laughs> without. And uh, it's a pretty harsh response. And here we see the distinction between called and chosen. Here we see it so clearly. Because in Revelation 19, that passage that this whole thing predicts and is predicated on, we're told that there is a marriage. Marriage of the Lamb. And we're told that those who are at the wedding of the Lamb, this crowd that Jesus is referring to in this, well, the angels speak and they say, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, to God, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The, the wedding's here. The feast is, is set and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. They've been given fine linen to wear. This guy, he's not wearing fine linen, is he? In Revelation we read, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What is this guy lacking? He doesn't have the fine linen, the righteous acts. No, he's like the first crowd. He wants to be included. He wants the invitation. He wants the party. But he won't work in the field. And he won't obey God. And he won't obey. God says, many are called, but few are chosen. Who are those that God chooses? Those who clothe themselves in righteous deeds. Not those who say, I like it, I want it, let me in. But those who serve in the vineyard. Those who repent. The first great fruit of Christian living, who repent of their sins and say, God, let me serve you. Those are the chosen ones. Are you chosen? You stand before God this morning. He's looking at your heart. Are you chosen? Are you clothed with righteous deeds? Are you honoring your father by working in his vineyard? Are you a repentant sinner? Or do you just rejoice that you're called and say, I got the ticket. I got the ticket. I'm allowed. Let me in. This, this parable is clear. Many are called, few are chosen. It's not whether you're called, it's whether you're chosen. And those who are chosen are those who are clothed in the fine linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
And that first righteous deed is to repent and to say to Jesus, change me, love me, give me your Holy Spirit so that I can produce more of these deeds because the Holy Spirit has given us that we might do righteous deeds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and the mercy he has shown us. We thank you that he has called us, that you have called us. We thank you that he has died for us to enable us not to produce only wicked and depraved deeds, but to do the righteous deeds that the Holy Spirit allows those who repent and turn to him. Father, clothe clothe us in righteous deeds. Choose us. May we not be just called, but may we be chosen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.